Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this evening. So we think about, um, we heard this evening what he did. And Peter is helpful for us tonight because he explains to us why he did it, what it accomplished. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, it's page 1015 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to turn there. Hear now the word of God. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, we thank you for this time uh, that we can spend this evening considering the work that your Son has done for us, that we might be redeemed, purchased through his blood, and brought into a relationship with you. I pray that you would help us as we spend a moment or two considering these truths, that we might understand your love for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And Peter uh, here explains to us this uh, very powerful picture as not only what happened to Christ, but what he was accomplishing in dying for us and going to the cross and, and there um, breathing his last, as Mark tells us. There's one particular passage in, this, in, this ver- in these verses, the one verse, excuse me, that I find particularly interesting. And I want to read it, and then we're going to flip back to Mark chapter 15 if you want. But it says there in verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, he says, when he, reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And, and I want to, maybe we could remind ourselves of, of that event here in, in Mark's gospel. And so keep your finger here in 1 Peter 2, and we're going to return there. But it was read for us this evening, this accounting of, of the reviling of Jesus, of what he endured um, upon the cross. And it was not only that he died there, but it, they added, if you will, to the pain and suffering through this mocking that he was to endure. And Peter wants to draw that out for us for some reason. We see in Mark 15 and verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. I find this passage interesting in fact that, in light of the fact that these guys are just walking by. They're just passing by. I mean, they're not part of the mob that, that got all worked up and shouted crucify him. And they're not, not part of the group that dragged him from here to there. There's passerbys. This ha- happened to be going from one place to another. Happened to go into a friend's house or take their kids on a play date or, or go to work. And, and there they happen by these three men who are, who are dying, who are being crucified. And so they stop for a moment, don't they? 
And they stop to add to our Lord's suffering. And they gawk at Him and wag their heads at Him and taunt Him. And what I find interesting is that they, they evidently know something about Jesus, don't they? They have something to say, these passerbyers. If you were to ask the, the common man on the street in Jerusalem in this day, hey, do you know anything about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth? I think what they would probably say, oh, he's the guy who said he's going to destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. And that's what they accuse him of. You see that in verse 29? You, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. And this evidently had, had, had spread around. In fact, this is what he was accused of. If you look over there in Mark 14 and verse 57, it says, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And so this is the accusation that they're, they're lobbying against us. Even after Jesus died, this still uh, hung around for a little while. We get to Acts chapter 6. And they dragged Stephen before the same council that ordered Christ to be crucified. And the Bible says they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And so this is, this is the, 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 their understanding of who Jesus is. He's some rebel. He's, He's going to lead this rebellion and destroy the temple. The reality is Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. He said something very close, but he never said that. In fact, John chapter 2, I'm going to turn there. We actually see what Jesus said. It's when Jesus is beginning his ministry and he And he enters into that temple, and there on the Passover, he sees all sorts of terrible things taking place. John tells us in John 2.13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temple, their, their tables. And he told them, those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so this incredible event, as you know, Jesus is just clearing all these people out of the temple courtyard. He even has a whip and he's driving animals, oxen and sheep go stampeding and coins go flying and everybody's business is being ruined by this rabbi. And, and they are, of course, very upset with him and they ask him there in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what signs do you do to show us for doing these things? Right, what a th- do you have to actually do this? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Well, he answers in verse 19. Jesus answered them. Now here it is. Here's the phrase that they pick up on. Destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. You see the difference? Who's going to destroy the temple? It's not Christ. He never said, I will destroy this temple. He said, you will destroy this temple, but in three days, I will raise it up again. 
Of course, we know he's not talking about that building, is he? In fact, we read on in verse 20, it says, The Jews said to him, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. His temples, is not, this building is not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to my body. I am the temple of God. The Bible tells us in Colossians 2 that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He was so full of God that was put to shame any temple that was ever created. And, and, and he said, you're going to kill me. You're going you're gonna to destroy me. But in three days, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. I'm going to rebuild this temple. Now, but here's the question. How, how does that, that statement answer their request for what, what authority do you have to do this? Why is that statement, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it from the dead, an answer to the question, what, what, how, how are you able to clear this temple? Well, well, quite simply, it is when he is raised from the dead, who does he show himself to be? It's God. He shows, he proves himself to be God. Then whose temple is it? He is saying, this is my temple. I'm the God who had you build this temple. And I have come to cleanse it. And I will show you my great grace and kindness to you. Because you will kill me one day, won't you? But one day I will raise myself back from the dead. And so when we, when we read the story of Jesus dying on the cross, who's on the cross? It's God. That's our God who is dying for us. He is on the cross and they come to him. People just walking by and say, aha, you who would destroy this temple in three days, rebuild it. Save yourself. Come down from that cross. You're all talk, Jesus. You're all, you're all show, but you, you can't even do anything for yourself. You who say you're going to do these wonderful things. Why don't you just come down the cross and prove it to us that you have this power? But Peter says when he was reviled, he did not answer. Don't you want him to answer? Don't you want him to say something? There's part of me that just... I mean, I just wish he kind of just opened up the earth and swallowed a couple of them and then just everybody would shut up and, and go on their way. It's like, okay. I, I mean, and Peter comes in the garden and he chops that guy's ear off and he says, put your sword away, Peter. Do you not know that I, if I could ask my father and he would send me 12 legions of angels, over 70,000 angels would come down with swords drawn? That would get their attention. But Jesus does not. He does not say anything you told us, they say, that you are this mighty man that's going to do these mighty things. You're not doing what you said you would do. But he's doing exactly what he said would happen. The temple's being destroyed. God is being killed. And three days later, he will rebuild it. Just as he promised. And there, with this incredible self-control, he holds his tongue. How long, friend, would it take you, if you had all power, to speak up to those who reviled you, those who accused you? But it seems like Christ has this infinite capacity to absorb abuse and sin and not return. 
As they call him to save yourself, save yourself. They say over, and the priests say it, the thieves say it, the passers-by say it, save yourself. He can't because he's saving us. and He's saving them. He will not save himself despite this mockery. In fact, he's saying, yeah, I think he said, I, I will save myself. Just give me three days and I will save myself. But right now I'm not going to in order that you might be saved. This is what Peter tells us. So I don't know if you have your finger there, but just let us end here in understanding what Peter is explaining. How is it that the death of Jesus saves us then? How does that work? Well, look in verse 22, 1 Peter 2. It says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So we know that, that God has punished sinners through death. And here it says, well, Jesus didn't have sin. So why then is, why are we reading about his death? Why is he dying if he had no sin? Well, he's dying because you have sin and I have sin and they have sin. And he's dying in our place as our substitute. This is what Peter tells us in verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so on the cross, he's receiving the wrath of God for sinners. It's all being poured out on Christ. It's being unleashed upon Jesus. And not just their sin, but you see what Peter says? He says it's our sin. Peter puts himself in that group. He bore our sin. And so when we see Jesus dying on the cross, see him as receiving your condemnation. It's your, your place he is taking. He is taking his, uh, our sin upon him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You were. Your sin was there. And they put it on Jesus. God put it on Jesus. Peter said he bore our sins. And when they're wagging their heads at him and taunting him and nailing those spikes into his hand and all the rest, even the sins that were occurring at that very moment, he was taking them on himself that God would pour out wrath upon Jesus and not those who mocked him, not those revilers who walked by at the very moment he was dying for their sin as it was lobbied upon him and our sin. Now here's the question that I just want to end in. If Peter tells us that he took our sin upon him, that we God took our sin off us and put it on Christ and he bore that wrath, why is that good for you? So we, we believe that. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. But why do you want your sin off you and on to Christ? Why? Do you, why is that gain? Now, there are many answers to that question. But, but why, is it, why is it ultimately gain? What do you gain through that? And I think we have to be careful here, but sometimes we miss this. I think the answer is found in verse 25. He says, For you were straying like sheep. Right? But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, what we gain is God, right? He doesn't say what you gain is forgiveness or what you gain is you don't get God's wrath or you escape hell or one day you get to go to a place of no more shame and sorrow and sin and sadness. Though we do, we gain all that and 10,000 times more. What Peter says is what you gain, you strain rebellious sheep, you gain God. God is the gospel. 
He is the good news. We are returning to God through the work of Christ. We who have strayed far away have now come home to Him, to our shepherd, the one who will pastor us, pastor us for all eternity. And so I tell you this evening, hell-deserving sinners, welcome home to a holy God. Welcome. He has done this work for you through His Son. In fact, on, on the night before Jesus was crucified, He took the cup, didn't He? And He said, this is the blood of the covenant. He didn't say it's the blood of forgiveness, though, though in some sense it is. He said this is the blood of the covenant. What's a covenant? It's a binding together of two parties. And Jesus is saying that I'm going to spill my blood, not simply to forgive your sins, though that will happen. That has to happen. But what you get is more than forgiveness. You get to enter into a relationship with God. This is why it's more, why you must not simply admire Jesus. You need to love Jesus because this is what His cross has purchased. He has washed away your sin that you might come home. And so let's, let's celebrate that. Let's think tonight as we hold these elements in our hand and wait for them to be distributed. That it is through the broken body of Jesus and it is through the spilt blood of Jesus. I who have rebelled now I'm welcomed back to God. I'm, I'm, I'm in covenant with God. He loves me and I love Him and forever that shall continue. But before we do, let, let's take a moment and ask God to help us understand how we come to this meal tonight. As the Bible says that we should examine ourselves before we eat this meal. And so I give you a moment of, of silent prayer to our God that you might turn your sin over to Him. Let us pray together. We love you, Jesus. We do not simply admire you. We do not simply respect you. But we love you. For you have first loved us. And you have paid a price that we will never understand in order that we might love you in return. So we want to celebrate that tonight. With There's grief in my heart tonight. And yet there's this joy that I who have rebelled and my brothers and sisters who have rebelled have been brought to God through grace. And so help us to rejoice in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The deacons will come forward.